You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about summer orthopedic injuries. I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Brendan Williams, who's an orthopedic surgeon with the Division of Orthopedics and Sports Medicine and Performance Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as well. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Williams. Uh, hi, thank you for having me on the uh, the podcast. Happy to be here. So we both know that pediatricians see a lot of injuries with the onset of sunnier weather, things like sprains, fractures, lacerations, and concussions. But today we're going to focus on some of the common orthopedic injuries seen in the summer months and how we can manage them in primary care or when to refer for an x-ray and or maybe an orthopedics evaluation. And we're going to focus mostly on fractures and how to rule them in or out. We see a lot of falls in the summer, whether from a playground, a skateboard, a trampoline, or a tree. And often patients will report that they put their hand out to break their fall and then something happened. So whether we're examining a wrist, a forearm, an elbow, a shoulder, do you have any tips for us about physical exam findings that raise suspicion of a fracture versus something like a contusion or a sprain? Help us figure out what's important to know. Certainly, uh, I can provide some hopefully useful tips in terms of physical examination. I, I definitely to kind of second your point about the increase in PDA fractures during the summer. I believe, especially after this uh, COVID shutdown, kids are kind of out and about quite a bit more. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a rash of injuries progressing over the, the spring and summer months this year in particular. As far as physical exam, things to be on the search for and, and look out for, I think the obvious finding that would certainly prompt some additional imaging or further evaluation would be a deformity of the limb. And I think that's kind of an automatic criteria for getting uh, some additional imaging. Mm -hmm. I think sort of more fine-tuned physical exam findings, such as localized tenderness over bony prominences, uh, whether we're talking about an upper or lower extremity, uh, obviously those locations are going to be different and specific to the anatomy of the area you're examining. But focal bony tenderness generally, in most cases, would warrant some additional imaging, especially if the patient's unable to move the extremity in a normal way, or if they're unable to weight bear, if we're specifically talking about a a lower extremity. I think swelling and bruising can be a little bit nonspecific and oftentimes associated with things like sprains and contusions and and doesn't always uh, prompt additional imaging, at least in my practice. But I think definitely changes in range of motion of the extremity, inability to bear weight, deformity, and localized bony tenderness would be kind of the main physical exam findings that I would think would push one to either refer or get some additional x-rays. Those are some great tips and nothing like giving you a hard question to start off with about physical exam without a visual (laughs) um, on a podcast. So thanks for describing it, at least. The one joint that we see a lot of injuries in is the ankle. And I hear my ED physician colleagues talk a lot about the Ottawa ankle rules. So can you help me learn and remember what that is and whether or not that guides me in primary care about referring a patient for an x-ray? Certainly. The Ottawa Angle Rules, I think, were first described in amongst adult patients and were meant to help 
providers discern kind of when imaging is necessary when patients present with acute ankle injuries. There have been some adaptations and attempts at validating these rules in pediatrics, which with my understanding, at least with some mixed results. But in general, I think similar to my previous discussion about physical exam findings of importance, I think chiefly is from the Iowa ankle rule, if the patient's unable to bear weight or if they have localized bony tenderness either over the medial or lateral malleoli, over the navicular or over the base of the fifth metatarsal. Generally, any of those findings along with the, you know, the presentation of an acute injury would prompt one to consider some imaging of the ankle. I think if there, you lack any of those particular findings, patients are able to weight bear and kind of their generalized pain or tenderness is more so over the soft tissue structures. It would sort of point you more towards the more common injury, which might be a lateral ankle sprain. And in those particular injuries wouldn't necessitate imaging as a first step in all cases. Great. Thank you for that. And the other joint or bone, I should say, that we fracture or see fractures in is the clavicle. Obviously, we see that in newborns, but occasionally we have older patients who fracture their clavicle after a fall, which happens in the summer a lot. So how is management of a clavicle fracture different in these older kids than it is in the newborns? Yeah, I I agree. We definitely see uh, quite a few clavicle fractures uh, throughout the age range, and these tend to be falls where patients land directly on the shoulder rather than the the traditional foosh or fall on an outstretched hand. These clavicles, in general, because of the shape of the bone and the impact uh, or the low transmission from the shoulder to the clavicle uh, results in generally what what ends up being a a middle of the bone or mid-shaft clavicle fracture kind of most commonly. A lot of the treatment for clavicle fractures has been adapted initially from the adult population, although we know kids are very different. They continue to grow. The clavicle in particular has growth that goes even upwards into adulthood with the clavicular growth plate or physis being the last to close in the human body into the 20s. And so as a result, kids have a great propensity for remodeling and healing that's very different from the adult population. So In an adult where there's some criteria that are set to define when patients might necessitate or benefit from surgical intervention, it's almost, I shouldn't say unheard of, but very uncommon to need surgery for children and adolescents uh, up to about 16 or 18 years of age. Generally, our treatment protocol for these, and, and there is some difference amongst providers, but is a short period of immobilization of a few weeks, followed by kind of gradual mobilization of the arm before a return to, to kind of full activities when uh radiographs demonstrate adequate healing. Mm -hmm. Most of these patients end up being mobilized for anywhere from uh, four to six weeks and then uh, restricted from activities for another month or so until this uh, this healing is noted to be appropriate. But there's definitely some growing uh, evidence and some discussion and conflict even within the orthopedic community for these teenagers, sort of middle of the road, who are not quite adult in age, but maybe have some characteristics of adult-type injuries in terms of what the best treatment strategy is with them. But to the best of my knowledge and to the, the best available evidence for kids in this age range is that surgery is very rarely indicated. That's good news. Um, altogether, though, these fractures can really put a damper on your summer plans. And I could go through the body and ask you about all the different bones and fractures that you see. But kind of looking at the big picture, can you help me understand how skeletal maturity changes your management? So are younger kids less or more likely to fracture? And how does our level of concern about a fracture differ depending on the child's age and the fact that their growth plates may or may not be open? Certainly, this is a great question and an important one. Definitely something that we as pediatric orthopedists take into consideration with kids throughout the age range. And 
Growth plates and skeletal maturity of patients has a tremendous impact on how we manage patients. Younger patients have a great deal of remodeling potential, which enables them to accommodate and actually resolve injuries that otherwise older patients might require surgery. And fractures that are somewhat angulated or slightly deformed can be treated in a closed or non-operative fashion in a safe way. As kids approach skeletal maturity and get closer to the end of their growth, we end up treating them oftentimes more similarly to adults. And this can be a different treatment decision based off of the location of the injury and how far that particular injury is away from a growth plate. The vast majority of patients that we end up treating for wrist fractures, for instance, uh, can be treated in a closed fashion with casts as well as reductions in the emergency department because the wrist has a great deal of remodeling potential and the vast majority of the growth of the upper extremity comes from this area. In contrast, joints like the elbow, where there isn't a great deal of remodeling that occurs because uh, those growth plates don't provide it, do more commonly require interventions like surgery in kids. It's interesting how it varies by not only age, but location, as you were just talking about how the growth plates are different in different areas of the body. So that's really fascinating. Fortunately, not everything is a fracture. So for those patients who don't have a fracture but have some limited mobility due to pain, how should we manage these contusions and sprains? Should we be encouraging things like splints and ACE wraps, or is it better for us to keep the joints mobile? So contusion and sprains, as you guys are probably seeing a lot more on the front line, I think it's certainly worthwhile to consider pain management strategies that provide the best relief early on. In general, I would say there's very little harm to short periods of immobilization, regardless of the injury type. I do think that when we are certain that there's not a fracture present, early weight-bearing and early mobilization can help patients recover and get back to activities a little bit sooner. But in the acute setting for the first few days or week, applying splints or removable braces or even ACE wraps uh, can be helpful. I know some individuals have access to things like walking boots or cam boots, as well as removable Velcro wrist splints. And those can be a great thing to utilize in these early periods of time to give patients and families some additional pain relief, but also make them feel like, you know, they're being looked after and cared for. I think it's very difficult as a provider, even if you know an injury specifically doesn't necessitate a cast, a splint, or something of that regard to send patients away in pain without really doing anything intervention-wise. We know that sometimes x-rays can miss fractures. So if we have a patient who comes in and is still needing to ice an injury or use Motrin or use the ACE rep, how long is too long for that to be going on when we should consider a follow-up evaluation? I think it does definitely vary a little bit based off the patient and based off the region of injury. I do find that lower extremity injuries, because they limit the patient's ability to mobilize adequately if they're having significant amounts of pain, tend to respond better with earlier follow-up, which can be in the realm of a, a few weeks or a month. Oftentimes in, in my practice, if a patient has no discernible fracture or injury that necessitates treatment at the moment in time, I, I usually arrange some degree of follow-up within four to six weeks just to ensure that they've adequately recovered and returned to their desired level of activity. Most sprains and strains should improve and recover in this period of time. However, some necessitate some additional imaging or evaluation, such as MRI, which could ultimately impact or change the treatment strategy. But I do think it's worthwhile at least giving patients a shot at non-interventional means of recovery. And if they don't improve with these measures, uh, reevaluating with physical exam, additional imaging, or even referral to another provider. And you mentioned that you've been seeing more injuries lately with 
kids returning to some of their normal activities after the pandemic. And now that we've reviewed some of the common injuries that might present in primary care, what advice should we give families during well visits and preventative talks to try to prevent some of these common summertime injuries? Yeah, I think that's a definitely an important thing to discuss. We have uh, sort of subjectively noted a rise in injuries and specific types of injuries, some of which can be attributed to kind of deconditioning and perhaps returning to sports in a rapid fashion after this uh, period of COVID. I think having patients be smart about kind of what they're doing and when they're doing it and maybe not rushing back into sport if they've been inactive for a long period of time, gradual progression back, a healthy regimen of exercise, uh, pre-activity stretching can be helpful and preventative and trying to avoid overuse injuries, which is kind of a, another topic in itself by rushing back and doing sort of too much too soon. I think there's a variety of resources online uh, through the CHOP website, as well as uh, a bunch of things that can probably be identified through Google searches in terms of injury prevention strategies. In particular, I would say Injuries that we see as orthopedists commonly include kind of ligamentous injuries. And these, although cannot be completely prevented, uh, can be at least addressed by some activity regimens in terms of reducing the overall risk on athletes that participate in particular sports. Yeah, and that's that's a great point. And last year, your colleague, Dr. Naomi Brown, talked to us about sports injuries after COVID and what they're seeing in the sports medicine clinic. And as you said, she also talked a lot about deconditioning. And so it's helpful for people to remember, especially this summer as we're doing sports physicals for kids who are returning to play a competitive sport in the fall, that they should not take the summer off. They should use that as a time to ramp up their activity slowly before they get to their camps for their sport in the fall. So that's a great tip to keep in mind and prevent some of those injuries that you were mentioning. Agreed. I also would uh, add that sort of adequate periods of rest, making sure patients are getting rest in between seasons, as well as, especially in this case, with long periods of inactivity during the COVID shutdowns, not trying to return to multiple sports at one time. Mm. That may be helpful in reducing overuse as well as acute injuries. Great. And we're always also messaging lots of safety things for the little ones. So as I mentioned in the beginning, a lot of these injuries happen on trampolines and bikes and skateboards. So making sure that um, parents are using all of the appropriate safety measures with those activities, things like helmets and wrist guards and netting around trampolines and things to try to prevent some of those common younger childhood injuries before they play competitive sports. Agreed. All very important points. So We've been talking about relatively minor orthopedic injuries, although we were talking about fractures, but some of the things that, as you mentioned, kids fortunately heal very well from. But we do have a CHOP clinical pathway for fracture evaluation in the emergency department that listeners can reference for more urgent issues. But just so listeners know, what are some of the more urgent orthopedic fractures that should go immediately to the CHOP emergency department? Yeah, this is another... uh very important question and certainly worth reviewing this. I think, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, one of the main factors that would prompt me to send someone to the emergency department is an injury of the extremity with an obvious deformity. I think that not only requires imaging in a semi-urgent fashion, but may require kind of immediate urgent intervention in some cases, such as a reduction or even a trip to the operating room. I think the second important point, and this obviously would require maybe a clinician to be involved in the assessment, but looking for neurovascular changes. So patients with altered pulses, which we can sometimes see with injuries that occur around the elbow just because of the location of the neurovascular bundle near the fracture site. 
Additionally, patients who have altered or decreased sensation or inability to move the extremity should probably be seen in a more uh, urgent care or uh, emergency room setting. Great. Thank you so much for just highlighting and reminding us of some of the more serious fractures that we can see as well. Well, as a parent who had a child in a cast for the summer, I can say it is not fun, but we are very grateful to you and your colleagues at CHOP Orthopedics for taking care of our patients when they do need you for fractures. So thanks for giving us a quick review today of all the things to look out for this summer. Happy to discuss, and I hope your child's out of the cast soon and can enjoy the warm weather without too much of a a restriction. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.